Good evening, and welcome to today's podcast from the Claysmore English Department. I'm James Carpenter, and I'd like to talk about John Keats's poem, The Fall of Hyperion. This is the most difficult poem that we discuss on this A-level course, but it's also, of course, one of the more interesting. I'd like to do two things. Firstly, explore the story of the poem, and secondly, to suggest that this is not a serious or sombre exploration of matters of life and death, but rather a piece of work in which Keats is more interested to demonstrate his assimilation of other poets. It's a kind of showing off, a demonstration to his peers that he's every bit as good as them. Before we begin, it might be worth reminding ourselves of the myths surrounding Hyperion and the Titans. In Greek mythology, the world had been created by Uranus, the god of the sky, and Gaia, the goddess of the earth. And their son, Cronos, the god of time, had deposed Uranus, but had himself ruled tyrannically. He was a titan, but he was overthrown by his sons, the Olympians, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. So there was this civil war in the Greek heavens between an older generation of titans and a younger generation of Olympians. And Saturn and Hyperion, who appear in our poem, were siblings of Cronos, and they were part of the generation that was overthrown by the younger gods led by Zeus. Well, why did he write about Hyperion? What's it about? Who was Hyperion? And why was Keats attracted to write about him? There are two things that might have attracted Keats to the Hyperion story. The first is that Hyperion was the god of the sun, or in some stories, the father of the sun, and he was therefore a precursor too, and comes with a kind of higher authority than Apollo. The second reason is that no one else had written about him, and certainly not since the times of ancient Greece, when Hesiod had considered the story. So if Keats wants to write about poetry, as he so often does, then the obvious god to write about would have been Apollo, the god of poetry and poetic inspiration. And after all, Coleridge had done that, and Shelley had done that. But Hyperion is a kind of precursor to Apollo, and by writing about him, Keats lays claim to a higher kind of poetic inspiration than those poets who'd written about Apollo, Coleridge in his Hymn to the Sunrise, or Shelley, for example, in his Hymn to Apollo. Well, what about the story itself? It's a story of seven steps or stages, and each stage the character of the poet the narrator of the poem moves progressively from the human realm through dreams and the imagination into a world far removed from human life and cares. We could perhaps read this as a journey into the subconscious, into the deepest recesses of the mind, and particularly of the creative mind. Aside from the poet-narrator, the most important character in the poem is called Manita, and she is the goddess of memory. And from somewhere about line 265, the journey is a journey into her mind. This illustrates Keats's conception of the sources of poetic inspiration and reminds us of Wordsworth's immortality ode. Wordsworth had explored the idea that the soul comes to the earth and is incarnated. It exists, if you like, before we're born, and when we're born it gets put into our body. But Wordsworth said it never really quite forgets, particularly, particularly in childhood, where it's come from. 
and that that memory is the source of inspiration. Wordsworth suggested that the soul had once belonged in the realm of the eternal, and once this mortal life is over, it will return to the same realm. But, and this difference is important, Keats does not agree that the sense of the immortal realm known before birth is lost in adulthood. So while Wordsworth might famously lament about the shades of the prison house closing about the growing boy, Keats might disagree. For Keats, the poet retains contact with and insight into this magical and spiritual world through what he calls posy, or what we might call the imagination. Indeed, that's one of the things that distinguishes the poet from other men, that he has that imaginative ability. In this belief, Keats might have had more in common with Coleridge, who described the imagination as a repetition in the finite mind, the human mind, of the infinite I am, a repetition in the human mind of what happened in God's mind when he created the world. So let's take a brief look at the steps on the poet's journey. Step one, he falls asleep right at the beginning of the poem and dreams. His dream is of an idyllic place, surrounded by trees of many kinds, where he can hear the soothing sound of a fountain and smell the scent of roses. But immediately it gets more complicated. Within the dream, the poet falls asleep and wakes in a different place. Now the trees, the fountain, the roses have all gone, and instead Keats is outside an awesome palace. It's dark and gloomy, a very gothic description. Before he describes the place, Keats tells us, I raised my eyes to fathom the space every way, the embossed roof, the silent massy range of columns north and south, ending in mist of nothing. Then to eastward, where black gates were clo shut against the sunrise evermore. Of course, we recall the sunrises in the east, and the sun for both Coleridge and Shelley and dozens of other poets was depicted as the symbolic source of poetic inspiration. So from line 82, we're in new territory. Keats is here staking his claim to saying something different, his claim, if you like, to originality. So conventional inspiration from the sun, the east, is closed off to, to him. The gates are shut, and he's in a different place, an older and earlier place where the sun does not shine. And he tells us, Then to the west I looked, and saw far off an image, huge of feature as a cloud. And by looking west... Keats is led in turn to memory, to Saturn, to the earliest beginnings of the world. And interestingly, because he looks west, the sun is always travelling away from him. Is he suggesting, as he had in his Ode to a Nightingale, after all, that the source of poetic inspiration is tantalisingly close, but always elusive? That it can be grasped momentarily, but then it vanishes out of reach? Keats, as he tries to describe something out of this world, does so quite often by telling us what it's not. This temple, he says, is not like any cathedral he's seen on earth, nor is it like the edifices found in nature. But in fact, of course, by calling these things to mind, he does depend on the comparisons we make in our minds. It's very clever. The third step in the journey is when the poet moves inside the temple. He now has to struggle to climb the steps in front of him and he's told in dramatic and powerful terms that unless he does so, he will die. The unseen voice comes out of the darkness and says, The sands of thy short life are spent this hour, and no hand in the universe can turn thy hourglass 
if these gummed leaves be burnt, ere thou canst mount up these immortal steps. Well, he struggles, he climbs the steps, and step four, when he overcomes the intoxication of the drink and fights off the cold hand, clutching at the veins around his heart, he meets Manita, the goddess of memory. She tells us, and him, that he has achieved this stage in the journey by dying before his time. So clearly it's necessary to die, metaphorically, in order to live. And this reminds us not just of the common language of a religion like Christianity, but also of earlier works by Keats, such as When I Have Fears That I May Cease To Be, and also of his Ode on Melancholy. For Keats, death brings a closer and more intense sense of beauty. In fact, it often seems to be the case that without death there can be no beauty. The beauty that exists without death which Keats explores in Ode on a Grecian Urn, is a beauty that he wants to reject. The fifth stage on the journey occurs when Monita removes her veil and the poet can see her face. He dwells on this at some length, but being memory, of course, her eyes can see nothing external. They look only into the past. The sixth stage is when she shows the poet what's in her mind, and we're now in the world of paradox, of course, looking into the memory of memory. And what she sees astonishes him, both for what it is, the dead Saturn, and what it means. The poet's excitement is palpable. He now sees as a god sees, he says. She shows him the dead Saturn as a tableau, as a frozen moment in time, as a kind of storyboard. And now we're in the realm of spiritual or psychological insight, where what is seen cannot be described, and this is reflected in Keats's language. He tells us, A stream went voiceless by, still deadened more by reason of the fallen divinity spreading more shade. Well, the shade, he says, silences the sound of the poem. But shadow cannot cause silence, nor can it drown out the sound of a stream. Keats is struggling to make language describe what cannot exist in the normal everyday world and he conjures up the wonder through the mixing of the senses. His synesthetic perceptions, which we've seen in the Odes, are working hard here too. This inadequacy of language is touched on a few lines later at line 352, where we hear Thea speak. We hear that she speaks in solemn tenor and deep organ tune, not in words. Her morning words, Keats goes on, which in our feeble tongue would come in this like accenting, how frail to that large utterance of the early gods. He's preoccupied uh, by the impossibility of describing what the god says. And the seventh stage of the poem is at the very end of the first canto, where the goddess tells the poet that so far he's travelled only in the antechamber of the dream, and makes clear to him that he must now summon great courage to continue the journey itself. This seventh stage is to take the poet, accompanied by Manita, into the palace of Hyperion, and the description is reminiscent of both Milton's description of Pandemonium in Paradise Lost, but also of Coleridge's palace of Kublai Khan. These seven steps are steps along a journey to the source of poetic creativity. They culminate with a poet coming into the fleeting presence of Hyperion, the father of the sun, and with the hearing of his roar, and then his striding out of sight. 
we're reminded of the end of the Ode to a Nightingale. This depiction of different stages of an inward journey was not new. It's what Wordsworth was attempting in his very long and very boring poem called The Prelude. Coleridge did it rather better and more interestingly in his Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and it's something Keats himself had discussed before and very explicitly. In his letter to Reynolds of May 1818, he elaborated in some detail precisely this kind of a simile, and this is what he said then. Well, I compare human life to a large mansion of many apartments, two of which I can only describe, the doors of the rest being as yet shut upon me. The first we step into we call the infant or thoughtless chamber, in which we remain as long as we do not think. We remain there a long while, and notwithstanding the doors of the second chamber remain wide open, showing a bright appearance, we care not to hasten to it. But, at length, are imperceptibly impelled by the awakening of this thinking principle within us. We no sooner get into the second chamber, which I shall call the chamber of maiden thought, than we become intoxicated with the light and the atmosphere. We see nothing but pleasant wonders, and think of delaying there for ever in delight. However, Keats goes on, among the effects of this breathing is that that tremendous one of sharpening one's vision into the heart and nature of man, of convincing one's nerves that the world is full of misery and heartbreak, pain, sickness and oppression, whereby this chamber of maiden thought becomes gradually darkened, and at the same time on all sides of it many doors are set open, but all dark, all leading to dark passages. We see not the balance of good and evil, we are in a mist. We are in that state, we feel the burden of the mystery. To this point was Wordsworth come as far as I can conceive when he wrote Tintern Abbey, and it seems to me that his genius is explorative of those dark passages. Nowadays, uh, suppose, living as we do after Freud, we might read both this description and the events of the poem in terms of some exploration of the subconscious. And the other letter by Keats that lurks in the background is one that he wrote to his brother and sister-in-law in March 1819, where he talks about the world being a veil of soul-making. It's important because the language of that letter is very closely related to what Manita says to the poet and the reasons she gives for his avoiding death. This is Keats in the letter to his brother. I can scarcely express what I but dimly perceive, and yet I think I perceive it. Do you not see how necessary a world of pains and troubles is to school an intelligence and make it a soul, a place where the heart must feel and suffer in a thousand diverse ways? Monita explains that there are other people who notice the miseries of the world, but then they go to sleep normally and are pretty thoughtless about it. They don't worry any more about the misery suffered by others. And she seems to be suggesting that what we nowadays tend to call empathy is a prerequisite for a poet. Such people, she makes clear, would never make it into the realm of Saturn's temple, or we might say never really make it as a poet. We shouldn't underestimate how radical this was at the time. There were many people whose conceptions of poetry didn't really allow for this sort of thing. And Keats uh, was frequently accused of being too feminine because he, was, uh, he, he valued this sensitivity to the sufferings of others. These ideas remind us of a number of his other letters, and it's what both he and Hazlitt find so admirable in Shakespeare. 
It underlies Keats's description of the poet as a chameleon, and it's also present in what he says about the sparrow pecking about in the gravel. It's explicitly connected to his idea that a great poet has to annihilate his own personality. In another letter, Keats tells Woodhouse in October 1818 that when I am in a room with people, if ever I am free from speculating on creations of my own brain, then not myself goes home to myself, but the identity of every one in the room begins so to press upon me that I am in a very little time annihilated. He'd also told Woodhouse something about the poetical character. It is not itself. It has no self. It is everything. And nothing; it has no character. It enjoys light and shade. It lives in gusto, be it foul or fair, high or low, rich or poor, mean or elevated. It has as much delight in conceiving an Iago as an Imogen. The sun, the moon, the sea, and men and women who are creatures of impulse are poetical and have about them an unchangeable attribute. The poet has none. No identity. He is certainly the most unpoetical of all God's creatures. And if then he has no self, and if I am a poet, where is the wonder that I should say I would write no more? Might I not, at that very instant, have been cogitating on the characters of Saturn and Ops? It's a wretched thing to confess, but is a very fact that not one word I ever utter can be taken for granted as an opinion growing out of my identical nature. How can it, when I have no nature? The story has always been that Keats abandoned the poem, The Fall of Hyperion, at the point that he did, because it had so much of Milton in it, and he didn't want to.、Uh, he felt dominated by Milton's presence, and certainly this is what he says in his letter to Reynolds, written in September 1819. But as so often, Keats might be playing a game with us. There are some grounds for thinking that actually he realised he could not articulate what it was he wanted to say. The poem could go no further, not because of Milton, but because it needed to reach beyond language, and language, of course, was all he had. He told Bailey as early as November 1817 that he craved a life of sensation rather than thoughts, and perhaps the Hyperion poem had got bogged down in too much thought. He lamented to his brother George in March 1819 that he was young. Writing at random, straining at particles of light in the midst of a great darkness. In short, he didn't complete the poem because it defeated him. He wanted to write about the realm of the imagination and the elusiveness of inspiration, but could not do so in this form. In fact, of course, and happily for us, he had already achieved this very thing in the sequence of his great odes. But perhaps too. And、this is the second point I'd like to explore. This poem was always conceived as some kind of a response to his rivals, and as it trumps what Wordsworth or Coleridge or Shelley had managed to do so far, it succeeds, I think, in this aim. Keats was a great reader, and throughout his career he tried out many different models of writing. And we see this in his experiments with sonnets in the style of Petrarch, and then in the style of Shakespeare, and then in finding his own sonnet voice. We see it too in his use of Boccaccio in his poem Isabella, in his use of Wordsworth and Coleridge in the Odes, and his use of Dante in this poem, The Fall of Hyperion. Throughout so much of his early work, we hear the influence of Spenser and Chatterton, and everywhere we look, we feel the influence of his greatest hero, Shakespeare. There's so much to say about the influence of Shakespeare on Keats, 
that large and interesting books have already been written on it. We must remember that when Keats decided to give up medicine to become a poet, it was not just because he wanted to write poetry. He was ambitious, and he wanted to be listed among the English poets. In this time, it might be helpful to reflect that there are a number of multi-volume editions of poetry, of English poetry that were produced, and they sold very well. You know, there might be six or twelve or even twenty volumes in the series, each dedicated to a different poet, and the sets would sit on the shelves of the rapidly growing middle class. When Keats said he wanted to be among the English poets, he w- he wanted one of those volumes to be dedicated to his work. By choosing to write about this war in heaven, Keats is deliberately echoing Milton's Paradise Lost, which describes the war between Satan and God. But he's doing it by using not a biblical source, but a classical one. So at the same time, he reminds us of Milton, but also shows some distance between them. Shows how he's different from him. Keats's relationship with Milton is a complex one, but Milton's is not the only presence lurking in the background to this poem. Wordsworth haunts it too. It's a mistake to see Keats as overly critical of Wordsworth. He was probably influenced by him more than anyone other than Shakespeare and Hazlitt, but there were definite points of difference between them. Generally, it's argued that Keats came to distance himself quite late from Wordsworth, but I think there's a strong case for arguing that it happened pretty early. For example, as Stuart Sperry's pointed out, the title page of the 1817 edition of Poems makes a very definite break with Wordsworth. For as well as the prominent position of Shakespeare on the page. He quotes a line from Spencer, which directly contradicts a central and explicit idea in Wordsworth's Immortality Ode. The details of all this don't matter here, perhaps, but they point to the fact that already by 1817, Keats felt he had the confidence in his own poetic vision to take on the unquestioned master of his contemporaries. In January and February of 1818. William Hazlitt, who was a journalist and a painter, gave an astonishing series of lectures entitled "On the English Poets." He spoke at the Surrey Institute to packed audience, and we know Keats planned to attend at least one of the lectures on the twenty-seventh of January because he refers to it in his letter of January the twenty-third to his friend Bailey. And the title of Hazlitt's lectures gives us a clue as to his aim, which was, in a sense, to rehabilitate the reputation of older English poets who'd fallen out of critical regard. His lecture on Shakespeare articulated a new and, to us, a very recognisable view of the playwright, and reading it today is still an inspirational experience. Hazlitt also spoke about his contemporaries, and particularly about Wordsworth, about whom he was quite critical. And we mustn't underestimate the influence of Hazlitt on Keats. We, we can see the influence in so much of Keats's language. When talking about poetry generally, for example, Hazlitt suggests that poetry is the language of the imagination and the passions. It's the universal language which the heart holds with nature and itself. The language and the idea could have come directly from Keats himself. Hazlitt refers in some detail to Lear and to Imogen, both of whom Keats writes about in similar ways. Hazlitt says of Shakespeare that he was the least of an egotist it was possible to be. He was nothing in himself, but he was all that others were, or that they could become. And this is very close indeed to what Keats, what Keats says about Shakespeare too. So, while we can read the fall of Hyperion as an exploration of poetic creativity, we can also read it 
as Keats's contribution to a tradition of poetry which tried simultaneously to write about inspiration and to embody it. It's always a mistake to think of any poet as writing in isolation from his time or his tradition, and the Romantics particularly uh, wrote in response to other poetry. There's no doubt that Coleridge and Shelley and Keats had all read Wordsworth's Ode composed a few miles above Tintin Abbey. Keats refers to it in his letters, and there are lines in a number of his poems which echo Wordsworth's. But we also hear echoes of Coleridge's Dejection Ode, and probably his ode Frost at Midnight. The fall of Hyperion is riddled with echoes of Milton. The plot and setting owe something to Paradise Lost, but in places the syntax too is Miltonic, as Keats lamented, and a couple of examples illustrate this very easily. Early in the poem, line 38, the poet says, And appetite, more yearning than on earth I ever felt, growing within, I ate deliciously. Very Miltonic construction. It goes on, and after not long thirsted, for thereby stood a cool vessel of transparent juice sipped by the wandered bee, the which I took, and pledging all the mortals of the world, and all the dead whose names are in our lips, drank. Um, th three sentences, uh, the verb in each one appears right at the very end. He goes on to explain the f that full draught is parent of my theme, and just a few lines later he tells us, prodigious seemed the toil. Again, a very Miltonic kind of phrase. But the fall of Hyperion does more than quote other poets. It seems to echo and use a great deal of Keats's own poetry. We hear the words and phrases and rhythms of the early sonnets, and there are dozens of allusions to his odes. All in all, then, I don't think we should take this poem too seriously. It's a bit earnest, because Keats is wrestling with complex ideas, and is in some sense setting out a kind of manifesto that distinguishes him from his friends, his rivals, and the other canonical authors whom he'd like to join. But he would never have been comfortable with the idea of a manifesto. He was sceptical, he says, of the power of consecutive reasoning, and he deplores the sort of craving for certainty that he found in his contemporaries, Coleridge among them. So the fall of Hyperion remains interesting because it embodies ideas about creativity and the journey a poet must make to its source. But it's not one of Keats's most significant achievements. These can be found in the Eve of St. Agnes, in the later sonnets, and of course in his great odes. His manifesto, if that's what we should call it, is a playful account of the process of imaginative work, drawing in, in really clever ways, references to dozens of other poets, from the very obscure, like a man called Mark Akenside, to the very well-known, like Dante and Shakespeare, Milton and Wordsworth. And in the middle of it all there are playful side-swipes at his near-contemporaries, Byron and Shelley. And the whole piece contributes to our sense that in this poem Keats is both enjoying himself and, it has to be said, with some panache laying claim to be regarded as at least one of the English poets.